Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. This episode is sponsored by the new and improved Financial Independence Calculator found at thewealthstandard.com forward slash calculator. One of the driving forces of human beings is freedom, which infers financial freedom too. So several years ago, I set out to discover how any individual, regardless of their financial situation, could evaluate their finances in five minutes or less and have a firm date when they could achieve financial independence. The latest version of this calculator, which is free for listeners, can be found at thewealthstandard.com forward slash calculator. The calculator is going to take you just a few minutes to complete, and it's going to provide you with a specific financial independence date. So go check it out today. There is a saying that embodies the idea of absolute and unwavering commitment. That saying is burn your boats which is to say when you make a decision or a commitment, there's no plan B, no escape clause, no way to back out of the commitment. And my good friend, Garrett Gunderson has made a pretty bold commitment. He's made one of the riskiest moves that I've seen in a really long time. He just spent what most people would consider a fortune on training, coaching, Hollywood level film producer and production crews and other consultants to create this one-hour comedy special primarily focused around the topic of money and personal finance. In June of 2021, I was fortunate to be invited to the live taping. It is seriously a level 10. It met all expectations and exceeded them. It's honestly hilarious. Now, before this film is actually made available, Garrett's going to be doing a multi-city tour and it may be coming to a city near you. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Okay, so why did he do it? Why comedy? You know, I would say the taboo topics of politics and religion have a stepchild, which is money and personal finance. The stack of cognitive biases that prevent the mind from rationally evaluating financial strategy, it's pretty thick. The exception is someone having an open mind. However, the rule is that What's familiar, what's status quo, it's to stay on that course. So Garrett hypothesizes that the humor is a catalyst to breaking through these filters. 
but he's written books, three of them. One of them, a New York Times bestseller. He's been in the space for over 20 years. And despite what most would consider a success, his mission is to break through what keeps holding people back from living a life that they truly want. He's spoken, done videos, has a pretty broad social media audience, and he's taken his message, he believes, as far as he can go. And in this three-part video podcast series, you're going to learn a few things about what he's doing and why he's doing it. Number one is how powerful ideas have made their way into our belief systems and with really any vetting, scrutiny, or evaluation and how difficult it is to go back and objectively understand these beliefs without shortcuts such as humor. Number two, you're gonna learn a unique perspective on wealth and what people are really after with their goals like retirement or financial freedom. And in the third episode, we're gonna talk about Garrett's journey where he's put his essentially a really successful career and reputation at risk and why he's done it and everything that has led up to this point in time and this decision. You guys are going to love these episodes. Can't wait for you to experience this new content from Garrett. Uh, to learn more about his tour and if it's coming to a city near you, go ahead over to freeflow.group. That's freeflow.group. Or you can go to the show notes of this episode and the links will be there. Enjoy. Hey, taking a break from the show Don't forget that as a podcast listener, you get free access to the financial independence calculator at thewealthstandard.com forward slash calculator. You see, when asked a simple question, what are you ultimately trying to achieve financially? 99% of respondents say, I want to retire someday. I was shocked a few years ago when I learned two statistics. Number one, how few people actually saved anything for retirement. And number two, of those that did save, less than 20% would ever successfully save enough and not have to keep on working. I couldn't believe it. I then realized that what people really want isn't retirement, but financial freedom and ultimately a reasonable way to get there. That's why I designed the Financial Independence Calculator. You can get access by going to thewealthstandard.com forward slash calculator. Now, back to the show. What's up, Eric? What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing good. (laughs) Just got to spend a little time with you last week, which was nice, doing some comedy for your uh, financial guys. You've come such a long way. Like I remember back in the early days, decade plus... Like you always had humor, but you brought it to like a totally new level. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about what you're up to. Yeah. I first want to maybe set the stage because, of course, there's probably people that have not heard of you before. Mm-hmm. And so I was hoping you would maybe walk through your journey in the financial advising, yeah. the personal finance space. You've written two best-selling books, New York Times bestseller, one of them. And so you've experienced quite a bit. I'd love to hear about your journey because I think that'll set the stage for what you're doing right now. So I won 5,000 bucks for being the young entrepreneur of the year as a teenager. And that seemed like a ton of money for me. I mean, I came from a coal mining town. 
That's a I huge actually, amount of money. I actually had this crazy thought when they handed me the check. I'm like, oh, everybody else made that much money in that second. Now, obviously, <laughs> that sounds just ridiculous, but that's what a teenager's mind was. I was just thinking, this is amazing. But I want to invest it. Part of it is because I lived in this little town. And I want to get to the big city, which to me, Salt Lake City was big and intimidating, even though it's not. Um, but coming from a town of 12,000, it seemed big. And so I tried to invest the money, but I was under 18. And my mom wouldn't sign off as a custodian because the Italian side of my family would put cash in coffee cans and put them in the cellar. There was like, everything felt risky. And looking back, it probably would have been because that was the 90s. And I probably would have put everything in the stock market just because it was doing so well in the 90s, not knowing why it would work or how it would work. I actually remember when I was 18, this guy that worked for World Financial Group came and showed me this variable universal life policy and ran the illustration at 18%. Oh my so off like 70 bucks a month, I was going to be like a multi-multi-multi-multi-millionaire 40 years down the road before I was 65. And that's illegal to show 18% first off. And no investment in the history of the world has ever done 18% a year for that period of time. So like, but it was fascinating. I'm like, oh, this is compound interest. And if it's not taxable and... So that led me into asking a lot of questions and actually getting an internship when I was 19 years old for Guardian and Park Avenue Securities. Now, you know the way that really works. An internship was really bring your family and friends so we and could let sell, us sell them <laughs> products. And the guy that ran that was very big on whole life. And I, at the time, didn't think whole life was that sexy. So I liked variable whole life because Guardian had this variable whole life product. So... You could put it in the market, which was, again, the 90s. So it was doing really well. And then in the year 2000, two things happened. Number one is this dude from New York came. He, he was bald, but had a ponytail. He had a New York attitude and he was teaching and he was slamming variable whole life. And he's like, these are the 90s. This is the best you'll ever do. And I'm just going to compare because it was like, it was just early 2000. And it just started dipping for a couple of months. And he's like, I'm going to compare with this just couple month dip and that great decade to what whole life would do. And it was even. And he's like, this is even with no risk or minimal risk compared to high risk. And I remember just getting a sinking feeling in my gut, like, oh my God. Because you would have got people set up on. Right. But the good news is Guardian would let you convert. Okay. They just let you convert the policy over to whole life. So we went through and started converting policies. And also at the time, I went back to one of my professors from college. Stephen Herrick, who managed $5 billion in municipal bond funds for strong investments. They were the number two investment company in the world at the time. He was the number one investment advisor in the world, not advisor, manager, money manager for municipal bonds. I mean, $5 billion in municipal bonds, Lipper, number one, like yeah. Kipling, every, he was always number one as, as the guy. And then he decided to become a professor. He walked away at 55 and said, my next 25 years is going to be to pay it forward and be a professor. So we became friends and he helped me dissect what was really going on in the market, how I didn't really know what I was doing. And so between that guy from New York and him, I got all my clients but one out of the stock market by, I started doing that in March of 2000. Everyone but one was out by May of 2000. Now, for those that don't remember, 2000, yeah, 2001, and 2002 was three double digit negative years yeah. in a row. So I saved hundreds of thousands, would have been millions. I just didn't have that much money under management because I was a kid and most of my clients were family and friends from small towns. But it helped me preserve some of those relationships. It was hard to tell people I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But that really began my journey. Another friend, mutual friend of ours, Mike and I, Mike Eisen, we actually started flying together all over the country 
I think it was 26 straight months I flew somewhere to interview people, to go to symposiums or workshops because I wasn't married yet. I had made some money in college, didn't have a lot of expenses. I actually owned a property in Cedar City, Utah, where I went to school. My then girlfriend, now wife, was living there while I was living in her parents' basement because I was such a cheapskate back then and just spending everything on learning this kind of stuff. And that's when I started to really focus on efficiency. I realized if you could save on tax, that was a pretty guaranteed rate of return. If you could save on interest, that was a pretty guaranteed rate of return. If you could save on non-performing fees or hidden commissions or improper structure to investments, that was a guaranteed return. Or if there were duplicate coverages or again, improper structure with insurances, these were all ways that you could put more money in your pocket without having to take more risk. And I teamed up with three other young guys that were always asking questions, always showing up to these kind of things. And we partnered in a firm called Ingenuity. And we actually started this thing that was 20 bucks a month because we realized like we could make people more money, but they're still the same person mentally. And so we would have people be like, oh, my friend did better in the stock market and I'm not in the stock market because you guys told me not to be in it. What? You know? And so I was like, we figured we got to help people with their mindset. So with these like producer perspectives, we'd email out to people five days a week. We had these producer symposiums, or producer forums, they were called once a month. And we started opening up in different places and we bring speakers in. I don't know what else do we do? We just had like newsletters once a month and interviews once a month on CD that we would mail out to people. So we really started to focus on mindset while we were still helping people with their finances. Okay, so let me stop there because you get exposure, right, mm-hmm. to I would say the mechanical, right? The more objective numbers side of things you go and study. Obviously, you Timed it perfect. Not sure you, nobody really knew that dot com was coming right. or when it would hit, I but didn't, I didn't. great timing. Then you pivot, right? And now you have, I would say, a combination of number side of things, making people more money, but then mindset. So, what led to the mindset? What led to that shift into mindset as opposed to just continuing down the path of making people more money? Yeah, I have this partner, Les McGuire, who's very philosophical. And we were in a program called Strategic Coach. And every time we'd fly to Chicago to go to these sessions, we'd get in these like healthy debates and talking about things and dissecting everything. And we would always talk about like our clients and what was happening with them. And I was talking about, I was doing annual reviews every time in person. I was doing quarterly phone calls. I was really proactive with that. And no matter what was going on with their finances, they still seemed to have the same level of stress, the same issues. And so, we were seeing they're investing in our lives, going to things like landmark education, going to things yeah. like strategic coach. And it turned me from being a total asshole to only kind of an And then eventually I think I've evolved even you know, to a pretty decent person. But thank God, thank God for my wife. I did all this work because I look back to the kind of person I was. And so we just recognized the impact it was having in our lives. And we had this philosophy that the best investment is yourself, invest in yourself, you're your greatest asset. Like, and sort of like, what are we doing to help people with that? We're just helping them with their assets, not with the key their life asset. Yeah. And that's why we started that membership, which was called the Producer Revolution. Now, <laughs> it was a pretty sizable movement, actually. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it created some fanatics, and we had some philosophies that could have been developed a little bit more. Like, I remember like the answer to every problem was create more value and like, don't be a consumer. And like, it was almost like some angst and judgment that came along with it, which is kind of the visceral you get when you're 20 years old and think you know everything. Mm -hmm. And it was progress. It definitely wasn't perfect though. And 
it, that was back before we had to build our own platforms. There wasn't WordPress. There wasn't Kajabi. There wasn't like all these like plug and play things. We were like hiring developers, building it on C sharp platforms and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then it becomes antiquated so quickly. But I think it was a good step in the right direction because I remember December of 2006, I was in Phoenix with one of my clients. And he was really good at mapping things out. And we were writing this seven stage process called the Freedom Fast Track. And the second stage, I wrote Sole Purpose Activator. And it was like a really foreign, weird thing to think about considering someone's sole purpose, which is their values, which is their script for how to operate, combined with their abilities and also what they're passionate about in the highest context of how they live. And to put that in a financial program. And then later, I was like, wait, this is what makes personal finance personal. Yeah. And it just seems common sense now. But at the time, it seemed radical. It seemed out there. It seemed almost airy-fairy. And I'm going to get attacked. And we did a little bit, but not too bad. And then I eventually wrote the book, Killing Sacred Cows, shortly after that. And now I'm in a whole other world of like recognizing that there's just not as many people that want to be educated as that want to be entertained. And that finance is super intimidating for a lot of people. What led to that understanding, right? Because, and not to say that people have all stayed the same over the last couple yeah. of decades, right? But now we have a different society. I mean, social media, right, took place in between the time you started and now. Right. And I would say from a political standpoint, from a communication standpoint, even internationally, like the world is now getting way more connected. Mm -hmm. Right. What are some of the experiences that you've had that kind of started to set your course a little bit different than you may have thought in the beginning? When I started speaking, I think I started speaking more heavily in 2005. We had some events before that, but I was my other partners did some of the speaking. I was only doing it here and there. But in 2005, it was like I was speaking every month for our own things and going and flying to other places. And when I was going to speak at other people's events, sometimes I would be in a breakout session back in those days. But I was a breakout session on finance. Mm -hmm. And I might be going up against any other session. And it was hard to get as many bodies in my session as everybody else's session. I started really hiring a lot of coaches, Roberto Monaco, Jonathan Sprinkle, Teresa Eastler, like everything around speaking to be like, okay, I've got a different, like, I can't be a financial guy that people are intimidated by money and bored to listen to it. Cause then they won't listen because they won't listen. They won't engage and then therefore waste of time. So I started doing that. And then I remember I went and spoke at this event in Vegas. It was all dentists and every speaker had time on the main stage, but for a very short period of time, like 10 minutes. Right. And sometimes at dental events, they get CE credits for going to courses. But I never got to offer CE credit. So I'm now competing with people that are known in that industry and that might be icons. Maybe they're the best oral surgeon or whatever, or that they have CE credit. And I'm a financial guy. And I remember I'd been working for a while with these coaches and I got up and I give my 10 minute talk and I had the smallest room in actual physical size. And I had only a small square to stand in because people are sitting on the floor. People are outside the door looking in because I'm joking around a little bit, but I'm giving them a lot of information. My tonality is going up and down. I'm not monotone. I'm not wearing a tie. I just started growing my hair right around that time. And it was just like this entirely foreign thing. And I was like, okay, that was the first taste I had of it. That was like, okay, there's something different. And then a lot of times at those events, you do short videos to say what your description of your thing was, or I started learning marketing so I could write what it was and they could engage a different level. So I saw that entertainment at a pretty early time. And there, there are a lot of times where I would show up at an event, 
one of my coaches, Michael Port, would say a surprise and delight speaker. Like nobody knew my name. They were, and, they were delighted. But I would be like the number one or number two rated speaker out oh, of cool. 15 to 20 speakers because I could bring that energy. I could bring that entertainment. And then uh, <laughs> I was in Italy for a summer with my wife and just taking all this time to relax. And we just had so many good nights where we're like all joking around and having fun. And because I had two months with time off, I just was thinking and writing some jokes for just fun. And then right when we came back from my birthday, we went to an Atlanta Braves game and I'm telling her some jokes and she's laughing. And my wife is like, where are you getting these jokes? I'm like, from my own brain. I'm like, I'm really proud of myself here. Cause like to make her laugh, she's not a fan. Yeah. She's not like, Oh, Garrett's a money guru. No, she's like, take out the garbage. I knew you from college. <laughs> like, like I remember she comes to one of my events. There's 450 people at this event. I finished speaking and she goes to the bathroom and someone in the bathroom goes, you're Garrett's wife. Congratulations. She goes, congratulate him. Like she's just, you know, just not impressive. She's laughing. And then that Sunday, that was a Friday. That Sunday, I flew from Atlanta to Vegas. And one of my friends, Keith Yaki's event, goes, our next speaker's Ethan Hilarious. One of the funniest dudes you're ever going to hear. I'm like, okay, I got a 50-minute financial talk. And he just said I was one of the funniest dudes. How do I do this? So I walked out on stage and I go, oh, maybe the worst introduction I've ever had. But I guess he did mention I wrote a New York Times bestselling book called Killing Sacred Cows, which might sound amazing and flattering until the very first podcast I ever did. And the guy called it Killing Scared Crows the entire hour and a half. And then at the end says, what should I invest in? I'm like, oh, I've got a few suggestions. Bifocals, literacy, a new career, the crowd's laughing. I'm kind of teaching. I'm getting a setup. And I'm like, Oh my God. So I call my buddy who's a comedian at the airport. I say, Hey, come to my office tomorrow for two hours. We wrote some jokes. I did an open mic. And then from August, 2017, comedy became a hobby. But during COVID, it became more of a complete pivot into a way to integrate my career because you were there the night that I filmed my special where called the American Reem, where I took this merge of money and funny and did an entire comedy special with some of the biggest names to ever produce comedy being involved. My executive producer, Marty Palmer, won an Emmy with Seinfeld. My editor, Michael Schultz, won an Emmy with Chris Rock. My director has, I think, more comedy specials on Netflix than any other director. And he was up for the Emmy for the Fresh Prince reunion. So they understood that there is no court jester of finance. Who's out there poking fun at it? Back in the day, the court jester could make fun of things that were real, that anyone else would get killed by the royalty. And so I'm like, cool, I can start poking fun at something so that we can start looking at it in a different way. Because when I show up and just talk negative about a 401k, it's really like offensive to some people. And it's like, it hurts them because they've worked so hard to put money in it. When I tell jokes about it. And that's where I was, oh, that's kind of true. That's where I was going to go. So first it's like, I think the magician or the funny archetype, right? That's a hard archetype to own. And I think naturally that's not your archetype, but yet you've discovered this part of your personality that connects to people at a different level. Because in my experience in finance, you can easily toe the line of making people wrong, offending them. I've done it. We've all done it. And that's in the financial world. It's interesting where there's some very determined belief systems that are reinforced by books, by personalities, by media. And if you 
think or believe something different. It doesn't even matter the logic behind it. From an emotional level, people are just like, don't talk to me. But that's what's interesting about what I've learned from you because of this pivot that you're making is when you have this humor, first off, tapping into that, you got to be vulnerable. I'm not sure if you can fake funny. Maybe you can. I don't know. But to me, like, I feel like that's the genuine person when they're funny. So number one, I think it kind of brings down those barriers. But then number two, like you're able to talk about, I mean, just comedy in general, talk about taboo things, off limits things. The American like, Ream is like the right title for that. But even if you go to like Chris Rock's stand-up routines or Eddie Murphy's stand-up routines, I mean, they talk about the like hardcore that you don't just like talk about at a dinner table, right? right. Or at a conference. Right. Without the comedy, it's like canceled. People are angry. For sure. But when there's comedy, I just think that's an interesting dynamic where, again, these experiences that you've had that have taught you about personal finance, it's a challenging industry, right? Because you're always up against belief systems. Right. But then you figure out a way where you tapped into like something genuine right. about yourself where you're able to connect with people at a different level where they're now open to talking about what was off limits before. I wrote this poem and part of it says... Comedy is the key when no other will do. Love is the answer, but can't always get through. Satire is pointing out what we hide, but everybody already knew. And so that's kind of my summation of why comedy is so profound. Because they say that when you scare someone to death, they remember. I don't want to do that to people. It says it's almost as effective to make someone laugh. So if I can make them laugh and then... Like I was talking to my sound engineer last week. We're doing the final process of the special. And he goes, there's so many gut punches in this. He's like, in the special, he's like, there's just, I've never, he's like, there's a lot of gut punches. He goes, I got to be candid with you. When they told me what you were doing, I thought, how is that ever going to work? And he goes, and it's great. So it's cool to win over like some pretty intense critics in that world. I'm with a lot of like stature and knowledge. I mean, some of it hasn't. It's not anything to do with money. It's just a joke that happened to come out that night that I was expecting to say. It was just too funny not to include. But I think the theme is there. I think that it's going to help the masses face a topic that they've been afraid of. I'll make one more comment there. Then I want to get into just some topics specific to the special, but also just your experience. I'd say that, again, as you look at humor, I mean, look at Mm -hmm. roasting, whatever comes to mind. It's when Demi Moore was roasting Bruce Bruce Willis, Willis, right? And it, it was just fascinating because those are things that without that platform, like Never the conversation yeah, does like, not take place. Right. And it's almost like society has gotten to this like superficial level, which I think we're all involved Insanely with, bad, yeah. right? Where you have to have this, it's who you are, but then it's who you are in public. Yeah, right? there's, a, and, there's a joke in my special that my manager's scared of. I think I told that you heard the joke because you were there. I'm talking about like kids that they don't labor. Yeah, they don't need Labor Day off. Driving people around in an Uber isn't labor. We're going to Jamba Juice. That's typing on a Zoom meeting isn't labor. I'm like, having a baby is labor. That's why they call it that. Because it's hard work that wrecks the woman's body. Ladies, you deserve it a few hours off afterwards. He's like, oh, you can't say that joke. I'm like, nah, it's a joke because it's stupid that guys would say something like that or feel that way. That's what makes it funny. And it's not like I'm saying it like as a sexist, I'm saying it as the opposite. Like, how stupid are we? And that's why you get laugh out of it. But we're a sensitive society. The sensitivity, I think, is that conflict, right, between who we are in public and who we are internally. 
And I think that gap continues to widen, right? So these are thoughts that everybody has, but nobody's willing to express because it would violate some sort of like stigma associated with their public personality or public profile, right? I mean, my set's pretty clean. Yeah. Because it's not made much funnier with vulgarity because I want to have reach because in my everyday life, I swear a lot more than when I'm on camera. But I'm also just thinking about like, does it really add to it? I mean, there's plenty of jokes that I remember I posted one of my comedy sets and someone was like, oh my God, this was supposed to be clean. The sexual innuendos in here are so filthy. I'm like, yeah, I'm a filthy mind. What am I going to say? Like, so I don't want to mute myself. I want to be able to like say things that other people can't say. And that's what makes it funny. And I also want them to remember some things that will really help them in life. But the goal is it's got to be funny first. It's not just another lecture. It's like, I am truly declaring myself a comedian and based upon who's involved with the project, and I think where it's going. I mean, I remember I did a practice run for a group of your advisors mm-hmm. and you were laying on your side at one point laughing on my insurance jokes. And I was like, oh, this is fun. This is good. And that's good because I was doing a lot of Zoom at the time to prepare. So Zoom is not as fun as people in the same room as you, right? Because like you can only hear laughter one way a lot of times on Zoom. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a challenge, but a good one. So let me hit on something you did to kind of pivot the conversation. So you said you wanted to get through to people to help them, paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, when we first met, there was a sincerity and genuineness about you where you wanted to make a difference, right? You talked about the things that are most important for other people to hear. And of course, your journey led you to the point where even though you were saying the things that would help people, right? There was resistance on that kind of initial layer that they were not able to get past. Therefore, they weren't helped. So maybe get into where you've come with your understanding of what wealth is, like what people are pursuing, and maybe unpack the why aren't people achieving levels of life that they want Especially in a society where all the information, all the books, everything's there to do it, but yet people are still stuck in a sense. So wealth to me is knowing what your win is and living by your rules and your win, not everybody else's. We lose wealth when we try to conform to society, when we try to please others at our own expense. When we buy into this notion that this is going to be a temporary thing, that we're going to give up so much of what we enjoy so that one day we can finally live a life that we can love. And the problem is those habits become who we are. So I just had this conversation today with someone that I said, I'm leaving social media. I'm like, well, how are you going to do business? I'm like, there was business before social media. There will be business after. But social media is not part of my win. It's not part of my wealth. I don't want to have digital assets where how I'm viewed is based upon the number of subscribers, the number of likes, or the number of comments, because then I start thinking superficially about what would be viral or what would be controversial versus like being who I am. And so this is a weird notion, but I've had kind of like a renaissance in my life where I decided hobbies were going to be as valuable to my wealth as my business activities. They would be on par. They wouldn't be like beneath that. And I started taking courses on being a barista and 
then I just built this, like my friend, Mike Klein and I built this thing called the roast, which is a, it's got a big bougie seat and I can pull it behind my e-bike and then it's got a chalkboard that you open up and it's got an espresso machine you put up there. It's got a generator on it and it's got a sound system so I could roast coffee while I roast bad financial ideas, almost like jaywalking would be on the street. So like, I'm like, oh, that's kind of fun. And then I became a whiskey sommelier and then I started to learn how to fish. And then, you know, I started taking classes at, at Traeger and, and I went and shot an uh, elk with a bow. I just started doing these things that, were, that weren't really anything to do with money. They were just about my own enjoyment. So I started thinking about like, what art do I enjoy in life? What are my art forms that I would do for myself? So I write some poetry sometimes. And obviously comedy was part of that. And some of that crossed over into a business world or into a financial aspect. But the start was considering my life and myself valuable enough to take time for myself for no other reason than I would enjoy those moments, not because of validation by the external world. And by doing that, I feel like I could be more connected to the world versus having the world tell me what wealth is or what my win is. And so that has been really this revitalization of my life in the last few years. And I feel more inspired. I feel more ability to connect with people. Like a lot of my hobbies have to do with satiating experiences, either meditative experiences or satiating and satiating experiences are how can I create conversations that lead to connection? When I'm making a latte, I'm listening to someone and then we sit down and we have that latte and we have a conversation while we sip on that latte, which prolongs that conversation. I started smoking a tobacco pipe every now and again, maybe once a week or so. Ended up doing that with my dad who grew up Mormon. So that was a surprise that he enjoys it. And they text me talking about he's having some tobacco and pontificating something about life. And <laughs> know my mom's like, oh, that reminds me of my dad. He used to smoke every Sunday. And I was like, oh, because that's a 30-minute smoke. And it's a beautiful artifact. And so they, I just started to invest in hobbies. And I have this philosophy in life that I win when I play. So how do I play? I play doing comedy. I play writing like even my new website i'm writing today i'm just i'm writing things that are funny and enjoyable that are part of that process so i created life on my rules and on what my win is and so i'm not trying to retire from anything i'm not trying to run from anything i'm no longer trying to hide from anything and that can be difficult at times but it's so rich and rewarding so that's wealth when you know your win and you're living your life based upon winning all the way along not about Somewhere. So that was the point I was going to make. And I would say a follow up question, because mm-hmm. this is something that I think most people would resonate with. Oh, that would be nice. And they look at you, they look at others, right? That fit that persona. Mm-hmm. And they say to themselves, well, I have to do this first in order to do that. That's sacrifice. And yeah. unfortunately, we learn that through conversations and culture. Like, did you ever play the game of life, the board game? Yeah. The only way you win is getting a college degree in that group. That creates a subtle belief about why we have to go to college. Ever played Monopoly, of course. How do you win a Monopoly? Get as many things as possible. It's a zero-sum game, winner-take-all game. And we start buying into that belief with capitalism. That isn't really what true capitalism or free market would be. It's what cronyism becomes. It's what survival of fittest versus collaboration. And so I'm like, I'm playing games that everybody else told me to play. Go to college, get a degree, have a big business, grow that business. 
which was always about, well, I'll take care of my health later. I'll have time for my family later. It was, those were always in the background. And then the great lie that all business owners ever tell their spouse, which is I'm doing this for you, but it's not. It's for our own fulfillment of our narcissistic ego and this unfillable void of more is better and all those kind of notions that we learn in society, especially here in America. And there is merit to some of that, but there's a lot of false reward to a lot of that especially when we're trying to prove something to other people. As soon as we try to prove something to someone else, like I was practicing my comedy set and I had a terrible night. I was on Zoom, had some people on, including someone who used to coach me in speaking. And I had some friends in a dining room and there's a chef in the kitchen. It was at my friend's house and my wife's in there doing her culinary homework in the kitchen and it's noisy. And they're like, hey, how long can you be done in an hour? Well, my set's an hour and a half. The worst thing you can do is take an hour and a half in comedy and make it an hour. The best thing you can do is go, I guess I won't share a third of my set. And I condensed it. And the guy said, well, you really sucked. And I did. That's the truth. It wasn't good. But what was really hard is not to have that be a chip on my shoulder and be like, oh, wait till I do this on the night. I'll show you. But what I did was I waited. And a month later, I finally shared it. And he goes, dude, I can't believe that's the same thing. I'm like, yeah, I had an off night. Like I definitely did. I learned a big lesson from that. So, and a big part of the lesson was just along the way, enjoying it, like not waiting for April 15th, but being like, oh, I had this set in March in Ogden and the wise guys theater there. And it was like, um, it was an amazing set. And it was one of the best nights. I'm like, it wasn't that that night was only good. If the April 15th was good. It was like, as a standalone, that was a win. That was an enjoyment. Just enjoy that moment, extract that moment. And like, even leading up to that night, my last line I thought was awesome. I couldn't wait to say it, but I was like, I want to enjoy every moment on that stage. And I think often in life, we're trying to get to the next moment. And it's a silly movie, but it was really a movie that impacted me. It was Click. Did you ever see it with Adam Sandler? Yeah, 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 yeah. He could fast forward through anything. Yeah. And next thing you know, he's old. He missed he everything. Plot, he missed everything. And I think that most people would do that if they could without yeah. proper perspective because. Mm-hmm. I think that we've learned that pain is something to avoid. But what I've learned is pain is part of the process. And it's a gift, even if we don't like the wrapping. It's a tap on the shoulder. And if we're willing to go through it with love and compassion, on the other side of that pain is always connection and lesson. Like this morning, my wife, she woke up early. I'm like, what's up? She's like, I'm just really sad because trying to get our son in this camp. But... He's got to have certain vaccinations, but my son had a really adverse reaction to a vaccination back in the day. So he's not up to speed on certain tetanus and polio, which I don't even understand why he would have to have that. And she's like, so I don't think they're going to let him in camp. And he's struggling with friends. I was like, my thing today was like, oh, well, if you need to call the camp and have me on the call, be on the call. But otherwise, I was doing my best not to get sucked into like thinking that I have to make her happier. That's my responsibility, that there's something wrong with her being sad. And she was able to get a hold of the camp and they're going to let him in and all this. But I think that even what she did, I do a lot of times, which is we suffer the future. We start thinking about what's coming up and we start thinking what could go wrong with that. And we start suffering today for something that hasn't even happened. And 99% of what we worry about never is reality. Uh The stuff that are really the biggest problems are things we could have never predicted. And I feel like we're going to have the tools and, we're going to have the lessons through those, even if it is painful, but the people that struggle the most are the ones that try to avoid the pain, hide from the pain, run from the pain, go around the pain when going through it is the only way. 
What's interesting, I turned back to recently just... This isn't a very funny podcast. No, I'm not just yet. kidding not about yet. life. We're setting it up. There's a punchline, there's a punchline coming. Uh, but there... Maybe my comedy's painful. <laughs> no, it's actually not painful. It's really good. I was reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, and the definition of a meaningful life hasn't changed at all since then, but yet the world has become more complex. And I think it's been more difficult for people to have those moments of meaning, right? Because, because we are better at faking things now. We have tools to make things look and feel real. That so it makes real. it even more difficult. Filters and social media. Editing. And editing. And, you know, like, I don't know how to describe it without sounding too crazy. But I'll just say it. The morning of the comedy taping, I'm in acupuncture, just relaxing. I have this just moment of clarity. I felt like it was God. <laughs> just say, hey. There's nothing to worry about. I've got you. You've got this. When you make mistakes tonight, it's part of the process. Just make them. It'll be okay. So you're in show two. I didn't make as many mistakes in show two as I did show one. But show one, I just forgot where I was at one point. This girl, Trevinia, was laughing so hard. I, I, I got distracted because she thought the word caveman was so funny. So I kept saying caveman. But then at the end, I go... Does anyone know where I'm at? And everybody just started laughing because I'm just making the mistake, right? And then my manager yells out, yeah, this land thing. And so then I picked it back up. And then in the second show, though, the mistake I made is, remember the tooth bunny bit? I was meant to say oh, yeah, 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 the Easter yeah. bunny. I said the tooth, tooth bunny. bunny. Yeah. That stayed in the special. It was a mistake, but it was funnier. Or I talked about <laughs> the Easter bunny no wonder we have a problem with pedophilia. We have a stranger in a costume. Here, kids, go to him and he'll give you things for free. And then I go, that reminds me of a story with my wife. And everybody starts hysterically laughing because like, the last word was pedophile. But what it was supposed to be referencing was free. Because she went to spring break when we we're dating and said, oh, I don't need any money because the guys are super nice. They'll give you drinks for free. Oh, for free. you know. And so it's like, those were accidents. Those were mistakes that actually made it funnier. And the fact that I went in with this knowing, I was able to just be in that moment without fear. Like I didn't tense up. I laughed with you guys. I rolled with the punch. And I think that in life, we try to control uncontrollables and it creates unnecessary stress and worry. And that worry starts to become who we are instead of who we really are. And so everybody gets a dumbed down, lesser version that's not present because of how we handle pain, because of what we think is right and wrong, and because of how we don't want to be judged. And ultimately, we don't show who we really are because we think that if we're someone else, that people will like us more. That's my estimation. I've done a lot in my life, right? To because I don't think you can completely avoid that, right? It's part of our makeup. It's I'm part still of our worried about DNA. dumb stuff all the time. Yeah, I'm just more aware of it. More aware of it. I didn't like in the past. I just, stay in that moment. I like, no, I have too many windows open that are running in the background, <laughs> slowing the software down. You know, if I could be like, why am I worried about that? Well, let's have a conversation. I'm just going to call that person. Hey, this person didn't text me back. Oh my god, do they not like me? Now I'll just call them. Instead of sitting there and like worry about it. And I always think, well, maybe they have other things going on, or maybe there's a lot happening in their life. And if they don't like me, that's up to them. <laughs> Walking on the side of the road and stranger, and you have 10 minutes to talk to them. What do you tell him? We're all human beings. We all essentially suffer from the same yeah. programming in a sense, right? We're all part of the experience where stuff happens. And then we respond to it in very similar ways. And it's just this never-ending pattern that we get stuck in. So you're talking to someone for a brief period of time. What do you say? 
What would life be like if we just trusted ourselves more? What would life be like if we listened to our intuition? Intuition's such a gentle nudge. It's an inner knowing. It's a gut feeling or a light feather to the face. It's super easy to ignore, but the more we ignore it, the more we have unrest, even depression, and we succumb to scarcity. Now, intuition doesn't always lead us towards the easy path. That's the thing. I mean, that's why we like to ignore it sometimes. Sometimes it leads us down a challenging yet rewarding path. And sometimes because we think that we're too alone or we think that we're not capable or we, it hasn't been done before, we, or when I say we, I could be really good at talking myself out of any of this. I mean, look, I had surgery November 3rd, 2020, hernia surgery. And that man, I was in my bed for several days and I was eating gummies for pain management to go to sleep. I didn't want to take any opioids and I don't do good with weed at all. Like it just makes me disconnected and I can't even formulate good sentences. And so I just found myself being like, why do I think I could be a comedian? This is stupid. This is dumb. Cause I, that time I was like, I think I'm going to do a special. I'd written it out. Like, this is 2020, early 2020? 2020. Okay. November 3rd is the surgery date. Oh, wow. And so I turn on the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling that was done by Judd Apatow. Him talking about his doubts of ever being good enough to be a comedian and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay. And he has some really cool like things he wrote in his journal, which some reminded me about things I've written in my journal. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I was, can you walk down the stairs because of the surgery and all this kind of stuff. And then November 15th was when I actually called comedian Marcus and said, hey, I want to write this. Do you want to help me? He said, sure. I think we could write a special by January. And then... I'm on Barry Katz, my manager's industry standard podcast. So I do it April 15th because I said I was considering it. So all of a sudden, a brand new comedian is going to film an hour special that I started writing November 15th. And I'm going to perform April 15th where most professionals are going to take a year to do this. So I'm on Zoom five days a week, just testing this out. You were there for one of them. And I'm like walking and reciting and rowing and reciting and rewriting. And it worked out great, but it was uncomfortable. I had to face so many demons of insecurity, so many demons of how to like be direct with people, how to ask for what I really want, how to allow a vision to expand beyond my comfort zone, how to make changes that were not like how to how to like say no to things so I could truly focus on this, how to allow other people to support me. There were so many things that had to go on for that to occur. And that was the most growth. I mean, who I am from January 2020 to who I am today, I feel like I have to just reintroduce myself to the world from who they knew in the past, because I'm willing to listen to intuition. I'm willing to do the harder things and process through pain. I'm convinced that on the other side is love and connection. I feel worthy of love. I feel that I still have insecurities, but I still love myself, even if I'm imperfect. And I've adopted a statement perfectly imperfect as part of my life. And that like, I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer, but I do have the question. And my question at all times, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, is what would love choose? What would love do? How would love show up? And I used to think that what was most unique about us was like our abilities, because that's maybe a strategic coach concept. But I think what makes us most unique is how we show love, how we express love, how we receive love. And I'm like, what if I mastered that? What if I invested in that? Not in all the other stuff about more, but how to show up as love, how to choose love when it's difficult, how to choose love when I want to pout and be a victim, how to choose love when someone I feel has wronged me or said something negative about me. 
Yeah. It's like someone I really look up to when I said, I don't want to be part of this anymore, of something I was on the board. And he was like, well, you know, that's really going to impact us. I'm like, I know, but you'll figure it out. Well, what am I going to do? You've always found a way. Like in the past, I'd have been like, oh, you're right. Let me do it, even though I don't feel like I have the time or capacity or that I don't feel like this is my calling because I want to appease you. I was like, hey, we can still be in relation. You can even go tell people I'm an and I'll be okay because I'll just keep showing up as love. And part of the time that is having clear boundaries. And so that's a long 10 minutes. I guess it's a 10 minutes of what I would tell someone. What I took from that is the question you ask yourself, especially when you're experiencing fear or anxiety or stress, right? I think we all have... Oh, it's easy when times are good. Yeah. It's really, I would say like the primal part of us that shows up when things are not how we expected. And it's number one, it's the awareness of it. But then number two, it's not relying right on just those carnal instincts, right? It's strategically designing a way in which you can ask yourself different questions and catch yourself, then obviously be more present and enjoy that moment. And I don't know how you feel about this, but the way I feel about this is I have the ultimate testing ground in having a wife and having kids. Because I can be really neutral about things in business and not take much offense to it or not have it drag me in to drama or a lot of emotion. But if I don't get my way with my wife, I could find myself wanting to pout. I could find it harder to just ask for forgiveness and immediately or to just not be right in the moment and just listen. Like that is the ultimate place because I've shown her more of who I am than I've shown anyone else in the world. There was a time where I believed if she didn't love me, I wasn't lovable because I've shown her so much. And then when I recognize that was a limiting belief, I'm able to even give her more love without the fear of is it reciprocated or what if she doesn't like this about me? And I mean, I joke that this is like the 26th version of who she's been married to. I'm like, the only woman that's married to more men with one marriage is Danielle Garrett White's wife. That dude has been, he's on version 35, I think. Yeah. Like he's or even more. faster than I am. Because like, I, and, and, you know, because like he just goes like full steam ahead on any new idea. That there's so much. I mean, he's not that. like that now. Just the care that you and I. Uh, but it's one of those things where I hope that that's what we all pursue, right? Because it's, I don't think there's this end, right? To our becoming. It's weird. It's like you have so much brilliance and meaning when you're living in present moments, because that's really Mm -hmm. what all that exists. But it's this constant awareness that you can continue to to iterate and improve and be Mm -hmm. better. Not to take away from how you are right now, but be even better and just continue to improve on the experience of life. Because I mean, I don't know if we're designed to sit still. He's certainly not designed to sit still. (laughs) And it's it's cool to look back. Like I was a miser when I was first married. Yeah. And so I was all about the game of preservation and cutting and budgeting. Yeah. And my kids are fascinated when they hear these stories because they don't know that version of it. And I remember my youngest asked my wife, like, why does dad like that? And she goes, I just thought it would be the best thing for our family at the time. I was like, oh, God, that was so healing. Like she just let me like... Our first year of marriage, I really felt like my wife was going, what the hell did I get into? So I'm like, hey, we need to balance this checkbook. Why are you spending so much on your classroom? You're supposed to get paid as a teacher and I'll be paying out. Like, hey, why is this electrical bill so high? Like, you know, like (laughs) just ridiculous. And she was patient. And she just keeps holding a mirror up and saying, is this what you want? Is this who you want to be? 
And she creates that powerful listening for me where I get to be like, I could probably do better. And for her to still love that version, but appreciate this version even more. This is probably good that we're not talking finance because people can learn finance from your book and yeah. from my book and all the stuff. But like, this is the stuff that I think that's underneath it that really captures wealth. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to go is I believe there's a very, maybe it's not direct, but there is a total correlation between your enjoyment of life, who you are, and your understanding of wealth and your experience of wealth, right? Because we all live in a society that we should be like in amazement 24 seven because of like how we get to live compared to the past. But yet there's still people that are absolutely miserable. Then you have people with lots of money, right? That there it's this insatiable thing where they think that physical things are going to quench that thirst. And so I look at, you know, just at least my experience of things, I would love to get your thoughts is your levels of, I would say, impact have improved, right? And impact, I mean, ways in which you create wealth, right? It's improved because of your internal improvement. Do you think that there's, I'm not sure if there's a direct correlation, but I know that there is definitely a tie. At least that's my experience. Yeah. I mean, we're in a consumeristic society where the eternal quest is for more. Well, the limbic brain, like the limbic part of our brain, like that monkey brain, like all it knows is to consume and consume as much as possible. But I was like, in redefining the game, it changed everything for me. What if more peace and less worry? What if more meant more leisure and less sacrifice? What if more meditation and more recreation and less frustration. And in my 20s, I had so much ambition that more meant more revenue, even more employees. So I could tell people how many employees I had. Do you remember my office back then? It was way extravagant for where I was at at that point in my career. I mean, you know, it was more about like more show and less personal growth because I didn't have time for it. Because the work was being at work versus the work being like working on myself. Yeah. I had enough of it because there was a carrot of like, well, if I do this work, then like I remember one of our mutual friends, Vince, is like, go do Landmark. And I thought it was just going to make me a better financial advisor. And it did, but not for the reason I thought it would. And in my 20s, I did a lot of talking in this podcast. So I did a lot of talking today, but now I'm really focusing on listening more. And not just listening to people but listening to intuition because I feel like intuition is source. It is the knowing that is like the divine path or divine will. And I can have free will, but that can be a lot like a detour a lot of times than just listening to that intuition. I still have choice whether to pay attention to it or not. And that might be a little bit more deep on the philosophical level, but I found that to be true. And look, I don't always listen to my intuition. I was in LA and walking and I saw this kid look like he was really in pain and like angst and like mental pain, but like didn't look like he'd been homeless if he had been homeless for a long, but he had no shoes on my hands, which was like, go talk to him. And just walk by. It was inconvenient because it was through other people. And I was like, and then I'm walking to the airport and I was like, I see this girl and I'm like, she's a little bit heavier, but she was beautiful. And I'm like, just go tell her she's beautiful. But I was like, oh, well, I'm married. That might be weird. And then again, my intuition is like, maybe she just needed to hear that at that moment. But I start rationalizing and justifying out of safety, out of protection, out of like, 
convenience or inconvenience or hustle or like, and so when I'm listening to my intuition is I had a dream to write a one man show. It was a dream. Woke up, I'm like, I'm doing it. And you've seen it and you've seen the impact it has and it's not even officially out yet, but that's intuition. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Whoa.